Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Eric Botcher. Eric, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. And it strikes me just in the moment that you're one of the few guests that I've seen more in person than online. In fact, I've only seen you online once when we were trying to record for your social media. But otherwise, not only have we met in person, but we've met in person to pick up litter together. It's true. We met in person, gosh, I guess a year and a half ago when some neighbors and I started doing community cleanups on the west side in the village, Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen. And then you showed up at the and started doing the cleanups. How did you find out about the cleanups, Josh? Let me first, I'm going to read a little bit from your bio so listeners get a, a piece of picture for who you are. There's more bio there than I can read, but I'll start off. Eric Botcher is a dedicated public servant and activist who has devoted his life to progressive causes and to the betterment of the community he loves. Now, here's a bit dated. It says, now he's running to represent our community in the New York City Council, but he's won that seat. And I think technically you start in January and it's December now. That's right. Eric believes that if we come together and rise to this moment, New York City's best days are still ahead, which I agree with. Growing up in a small town in the Adirondack Mountains, as the only gay person he knew, Eric's personal struggles with depression sparked in him a lifelong dedication to helping the most marginalized members of our society. His journey from a childhood in a remote area to a life of activism in New York City was profiled in the 2015 cover story in the Adirondack Daily Enterprise titled Eric Botcher's Fight for Equality. And now I'm going to jump to the end. At the bottom of your bio, it says, times of crisis call for proven leadership and the COVID-19 crisis has put New York City's survival on the line. And as a city council member, Eric will, and then here's the agenda, create affordable housing and work to end homelessness, fight for safe living and vibrant neighborhoods, help our small businesses reopen safely and successfully, work to root out the systemic racism that pervades society, including the criminal justice system, advocate for our children and world-class public schools, push for safer streets and better transportation options. That's a lot. And I'll answer your question, but then I have a, how we met was I'm, I've been taking more an active role in my community. And I believe it was going to some of the New York, uh, the police build the block meetings with, that bring neighbors together. And I was talking to people there about what more that I could do. And someone said, you should talk to Corey Johnson, but you'll probably talk first to Corey Johnson's chief of staff. And I believe that was your role at the time. So he was the former, I think you're taking over his position. And I think he was term limited. So right. So I didn't know, at that. by that time, I'd been picking up litter every day for years. And I didn't know that you ran something to pick up litter. And I found out that you were organizing in three different areas, the West Village where I live, Chelsea just north and Hell's Kitchen just north of that, where you were bringing people together to pick up litter together. I think, I don't know, what was the balance because you just wanted to? And I've never heard of a politician doing that, especially in New York City. That doesn't sound sophisticated and the way that it's supposed to be done. <laughs> uh, you won the campaign. It was during the depths of the pandemic when like, we were all looking for things, actionable things to do. You know, the pandemic was and is, it's so much bigger than any of us. And it often feels like we're just at the whims of, of this big, horrible thing. So what you saw during the pandemic was people stepping up and doing incredible things, whether it was making masks. We had people in our district who learned to sew and sewed thousands of masks. We had uh, food. We delivered tens of thousands of pantry boxes. And um, I and uh, some neighbors started picking up trash because the Department of Sanitation's budget was cut rather significantly. The number of uh, pickups basket service and so on was cut. So it was a big problem and and people stepped up all over the city, by the way. 
community cleanups that are continuing today. Did you anticipate that? Were you planning on running at that point or was it separate from that? Did that lead to the idea of running or? Yeah, I was already running and I announced my candidacy in February of 2020. Pandemic hit in uh, March of 2020. So I basically suspended my campaign and repurposed all the campaign infrastructure that I had towards relief efforts in the district. And you also, t- <laughs> you also did talent shows online. So longtime listeners to this podcast know that one of my things that I was doing to do things that were less relying on technology and, and, and polluting and just on my own was learning to sing. And I came to at one or two of those prepared to sing, but you had amazing singers and flamboyant and, and like very like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know that Josh, I would have put you right on. Yeah. I was, I was like that mix of please. Yes. And please no. And so I didn't, but that's another thing that I think is community. And, and I've really never seen a politician. I don't know if I, I can't call you a politician because it, it doesn't strike. I mean, you won the election. So that kind of qualifies you, but. Well, next time, Josh, you are not getting off the hook. We're going to be doing more talent shows. I really believe that you've got to enjoy life and have fun. You know, we are on this planet for such a short amount of time in the grand scheme of things. It it goes by in a flash. Yes, let's make a difference in the world. Let's do the hard work. But let's also, along the way, have fun. And doing the talent shows was such a great experience for so many, especially since we, we were isolated at home. And Zoom really presented the, you know, it's not as good as an in-person talent show, but it really presented an opportunity for us to get together as a community from our, our living rooms. Actually, I keep saying politician. What, can you fill us in? What does a city council person do in New York City? So the city council has five main responsibilities. As the legislative branch of New York City government, the city council passes the budget every year, the $100 billion plus budget. The city council conducts oversight over mayoral agencies. The city council passes legislation on any number of any number of areas and also has a lot of control over land use in the city what gets built and where and then finally the city council members offer constituent services in their respective districts any of these things that you look forward to most or look forward to least or that you have a specific agenda that you want to I mean the webpage had broad things Yeah. One of the great things about serving in the council is you can, one can use each of those levers to affect change. The budget is a document. When you have a hundred billion dollar budget, which is bigger than most states, bigger than many countries, you can utilize that to advance issues. And from a legislative standpoint, there's so much progress that can be made there. Each of these areas, I really look forward to working with you and others to affect change. Just using the environment as an example, I want to, and we can talk about sanitation, but I want to conduct oversight over the Department of Sanitation. Bring the commissioner and uh, his or her team forward and really 
work with the advocates and, and get to the bottom of a lot of the sanitation issues that we're seeing in our communities. The where are we with the efforts to achieve a, a zero waste society or to, you know, we're far, far, far from that. So that's just one example of what I look forward to doing. And by the way, I've asked to uh, chair the sanitation committee in the city council. That's a decision that is made by the speaker of the city council. We don't know who the speaker of the next city council is, is going to be, but he or she will uh, assign committee assignments. And I, I would like to, to chair the sanitation committee. I'm glad you also, along with sanitation, cleaning up the mess, you also mentioned zero waste, which I believe would, I view the litter and the pollution not as secondarily as a sanitation issue, but primarily as a too much supply issue. And I'm sure I've said it to you before that you know when, when New York City banned cigarettes in the workplace, in particular bars and restaurants, everyone said, we're going to lose business because people are going to leave because they want the freedom to smoke. And then a couple of years later, New Jersey had to ban cigarettes because people were coming into Manhattan because it was clean and it was a business win. I can't imagine people are saying, I love going to a place that's full of litter and garbage all over the place. Let's go into Manhattan for that. It's true. It's true. And there's a lot of talk now about how to process our waste differently. Do you put the trash bags out on the sidewalk on collection day or should we containerize it and centralize it? However, at the end of the day, that's just shuffling around the problem, like shuffling around the mess that we've made and handling it differently. We really won't achieve the progress that we want to see. We won't achieve the level of sanitation and level of clean streets that we see until we stop producing the obscene volumes of trash that we're producing. If we could do that, if we're not producing mountains of trash for each building, landfill-bound trash, that's when we'll start to see real progress. Yeah, it seems like all this packaging, first of all, on the street or in the park, people are walking around with coffee cups everywhere and, and packaged everything that we didn't used to. Every time we went to the park, we brought several pounds worth of stuff that had to be hauled away. So we're paying for packaging hidden in the cost of the, price of the stuff. Then we're paying taxes for the sanitation. Every time someone says, oh, I pay my taxes, someone should clean this up. That leads to greater taxes because someone has to clean more stuff up. So people can't see this, but like, he's like, yep, yep, like nodding yes. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And um, the question is, what policies can we affect to disincentivize that behavior? And that's what I look forward to working on. You know, we live in a world of extremely inexpensive, prices have gone up a little, but just a little bit, extremely inexpensive imports. In the globalized world we live in, you can get a, a pallet of bottled water for a few bucks. So you can bring a pallet of bottled water home for 20 bucks and that's what we're up against. So how do you disincentivize that? We, I really look forward to working with you and other advocates to, to do that because we have to do that. The earth is getting choked in plastic. Our streets are, are littered with plastic. Our, our corner wastebaskets, there's nothing people hate more than an overflowing 
corner wastebasket. And in New York City, we have a lot of them. They fill up within hours. And take a look next time you walk by one. Folks normally don't. I didn't. But now I do. Take a look and you'll see that it's filled with single-use plastic, water bottles, etc. Yeah, takeout containers and Mm -hmm. the bags to hold them, plasticware. I do look at that and it's all the stuff we never used before. There's that. And when I see someone riding a city bike with a disposable coffee cup in hand, I'm like, you can't possibly be enjoying that. If you're enjoying the coffee, you're not safe to ride in the streets. If you ride in the streets, you're just, it's just something going down your throat. And I don't think it's a better life that all this disposability provides. And look, it's hard. I'm guilty of it. I have to own up to being part of that culture because we haven't really created alternatives in most areas. You know, we live in a, in a world where you get disposable coffee cups, bottled beverages, single-use plastic beverages. So I'm one of the people who, you know, I'm the first to admit that I need to be better. And part of that involves, you know, creating a culture of sustainability and reusability. And you mentioned cigarettes earlier. I think it, it, we've got to move the Overton window on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. You used to be able to smoke on airplanes. You used to be able to smoke in a, in a dining room. My high school principal smoked in school. Smoking in school, in classes. We need to achieve a world where having a, a pallet of bottled water at the front of a room is not okay because there's a fountain 10 feet away. And even in the most progressive organizing meetings, you will see a pallet of bottled water at the front door. So one thing I want to help achieve at the city council is moving the Overton window in that area. Yeah, I, the analogies that I, I find vision, uh, giving an image is useful. To me, bottled water, single use plastic, soon we will see it the way we see asbestos. It's very good at certain functions and it kills people. And there's no one who's saying, yeah, but asbestos, look, it's so, what, what they say about plastic, you know, it's so great. It does all these things. So does asbestos. And for that matter, marketing cigarettes to children raises the GDP and we don't allow it. And no one's saying, you know, maybe let's lower the age to cigarettes ad advertising. We'll go to 14. 14 year olds can handle it. No one's saying that on any side. Even the manufacturers aren't saying it. Right. I'm glad to hear that. And as you know, I'm enthusiastic to help on these efforts, uh, both, I mean, in any way, but certainly with the cultural side of things. I think we've talked about my famous no packaging stew, but I don't think you've come over for it yet. So I'm dying to have it. Tell folks who are listening about it if your, your regular listeners may know already. Oh, man. So, I mean, it began when I challenged myself to avoid packaging for a week. And that was the first week I ever boiled beans in the stove. And then, which I'm not exactly proud to say that it took me into my 40s to do that for the first time. But then I got a CSA, which was delivering me vegetables all the time. And I didn't know what to do with them. So I was just experimenting. And eventually I discovered that legumes, green leafy vegetable, starchy vegetable, and nutritional yeast, put them all in the pressure cooker and it always comes out well. 
And I, you can name like 20 types of legumes. You can name 20 types of green leafy vegetables. You can name 20 types. Of, so you get like thousands of possible combinations. And since then, I've, I've expanded. I, I had lots of other ingredients. And I've learned how to make these things and they're really good. So I've, I don't think Fifth Avenue and 17th Street is in your district, but that's where the Lululemon store is. And I did Earth Day for them. I did cook for a bunch of people there. And I've cooked out in Brooklyn North Farms for 50 people with nothing to throw away afterward. Wow. And also the Union Square Farmer's Market is very close. Or in our district would be um, Abington Square. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot from there too. So the, the vegetables are pretty much local and yeah, people love it. And so if you're game for it, then we'll figure out a way to do something. It'll be my, that, that's a talent show thing I could do when it permits, you know, uh, COVID allows. Sure is. No question. I want to do, on the city council, I want to do a lot of online content because one of the things that uh, an elected official and a council member has, you know, you've got a platform and an ability to share information with people. So I really want to use that platform to help create community, help us all know each other, help us learn from each other. We have so much knowledge in our community, so much talent in our community. I want to highlight it and celebrate it. Yeah, I've been going up to the Bronx and I did something online for a group out in Queens to do show how to do this stuff because I'm I want farmers markets to fill in where there's food deserts now and to help create demand and therefore supply. And so it is a I mean it is a talent, there's a talent element to it, but it is culture changing as well and, and hopefully role modeling. If there comes a time when a bunch of people are like a lot of people are saying, no more single use plastic, let that go the way of asbestos. There's a loud voice saying, Yeah, we've been on board for a long time. Welcome aboard. Right. And other parts of the world. So the environment is something important to you, I take it. When you think of the environment, what do you think about? What motivates you? I don't mean what, how are you trying to change the world, but what's like when, when someone says the environment and you think of, of being out in nature, what comes to mind for you? I think that a big part of it has to do with where I'm from. I grew up in the Adirondack State Park in um, a town called Wilmington, New York, which is across Whiteface Mountain from Lake Placid, New York, and right on the edge of the protected wilderness. So my nearest neighbor was like a mile down the road. And when you grow up in that, I never really appreciated it. It's all I knew. It's all I knew until I went to college in Washington, D.C., and then, and then went straight to New York when I graduated. And I you know, I wasn't uh, a happiest kid in the world to live up there. I remember begging my folks if we could move. But now I'm so happy that I did grow up there because I think it just gave me such an appreciation for nature, an appreciation for nature, but also an appreciation for New York City. To this day, I just celebrated 20 years in New York and I'm always starstruck by New York City and and just so impressed by it. Whereas a lot of folks, I think, you know, New Yorkers are hard to impress, but I'm, I'm always pinching myself that I live in New York City. But I also, I love going back to the Adirondacks and it, it, I think it instilled in me a incredible appreciation for nature. When you're there, what are you seeing? Is it, 
I mean, right now it's late fall. So is it colors of trees? Is it mountains? Is it streams? What, what? The Adirondacks is the, they're the highest peaks on the, I believe on the East Coast uh, in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. And the leaves peak in September, generally. When I was a kid, the leaves peaked in early September. Now they're peaking in late September and even October. So the leaves have been, the trees have been bare for a long time up there. When I was up there over Thanksgiving two weeks ago, it one day, one day it was 15 degrees. So it's pretty far north. What does it feel like when you're there? What, what kind of emotions is it? I mean, you described now an appreciation for something. Was it fun? Was it wonder? Was it solo? Was it with family? Was it with friends? Was it when I go home now, I go to visit my folks. I have a wonderful family. Very lucky. My mom and dad are still with us. They're up there. I've got my brother and his family, uh, niece and nephew. And it's so wonderful to visit them. And, you know, when I was a kid and then even when I was a young person going back, I felt a, uh, I did not feel comfortable there. I felt othered. I felt as a gay teen and even as a young gay man, I felt like I was always watching my back. And I don't feel that way anymore. When I go, I walk into the supermarket and I walk into the movie theater and, you know, or the gym, I just don't feel that way. And I think part of that is just being older and more comfortable in my own skin. I also think that the world's changed for the better in some ways. So I think a lot of it though has to do with just being older and and it's funny how things change in life. Well, now the way you said things change in life, I, were you just describing, it sounded like there was more to it than just the change of being there as a now versus as a young man or a boy. Yeah, I think the world's changed with LGBTQ acceptance, right? It certainly has. I mean, I mean, I've been in New York since the 80s and I suspect New York, I mean, I think New York was way ahead of most of the world, not everywhere, but a lot of places. So I've been in a kind of bubble of, I don't know a time when my immediate area wasn't pretty close to, I mean, I'm here in the village, the gay pride parade, or the pride parade is like one of the biggest events of the year, but the rest of the world I know is very different. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about how much progress we've made on uh, LGBTQ rights, it it really is pretty astonishing. And the, the speed that it happened, I worked on marriage equality. I remember, uh, gosh, it was, it was 10 years ago this year that we passed it in New York. And at that time, there was a debate in the LGBT community on whether it was going to take 20 years or 50 years. Within two years, we had marriage equality in all 50 states of that, of passing marriage equality in New York. And there are folks who wanted to go full speed ahead. There are folks who wanted to go slow to avoid getting a unfavorable Supreme Court decision. It was the people who wanted to go full steam ahead and wanted to go straight to the Supreme Court. They were right because we got the favorable Supreme Court decision and marriage equality in all 50 states. And the sky didn't fall. Talk about Overton windows. You don't hear 
about efforts to roll back marriage equality. But I'll say that I also didn't think that we'd, I never thought in a million years that Roe v. Wade, that we'd be on the cusp of having Roe Roe v. Wade rolled back in my lifetime. So these are not things that we can take for granted. But societally, uh, there's been an incredible change. And a big part of it has to do with, you know, the LGBTQ rights movement is is unique in, in one big way. And that is because almost everyone knows a, a gay or lesbian person in their life. If it's not a family member or a coworker or someone in their town, it's someone, you know, a friend of a friend, or it's someone on television, a media personality that people look up to. And that I think was the big uh, tipping point with marriage equality. When people started coming out, people started coming out, people learned that they knew LGBTQ people, and it made it really hard for them to oppose the rights of those people to get married. So that's how one of the reasons why I think we've moved so quickly on this issue. And it gives me a lot of hope for making progress on other issues. When we start feeling down about our ability to affect change elsewhere, the fight for, for racial justice, the fight for climate justice, when we start feeling on many days that we're never going to make it happen, I do think about some of the progress we've made in the past, and it does give me hope for the future. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. When you talk about 20, 50, oh, actually two years, is that a model? Are there models there that other, well, I'm partial to looking at the environment because people talk about net zero by 2050, net zero by 2100, net zero. And what if we got zero, zero, not net zero, which I find there's a lot of accounting tricks in there. Mm. But could things happen there? I mean, everybody knows someone who's environmental in some way as well. It's not like a foreign thing, although most people don't. Most people, I think most Americans, their community are people who care, but don't act. Right and feel like what they do doesn't matter. And there are a few people like me who are more in the vanguard to me living the way we used to live before all the pollution. So I don't feel like I'm extreme. I feel like I'm returning from an extreme of mainstream America these days in terms of environmental behavior. But could things happen in two years that we thought were going to take 20 or 50? I think you are right that when it affects people personally is when you've got an opportunity to make real change when it affects people in their own lives. And I believe that, you know, with respect to climate change, when people start 
unfortunately, we don't have that much time. But when people start seeing the effects of climate change, what I've read is that the numbers are, the public opinion numbers are going in our direction, that more and more Americans are recognizing that climate change is a a man-made phenomenon. And perhaps that has to do with people seeing, you know, the West Coast with fires and the East Coast with flood potential. Maybe that has something to do with it. But otherwise, people are going to just go by what they hear on cable news. Half the country watching Fox News, the other half of the country watching other networks. So making it real for people in their lives is one way of making progress. Unfortunately, we really don't have that much time. And once people start seeing the most devastating effects of climate change, a lot of those effects are going to come when it's too late. The real nightmarish effects of climate change are going to come when it's too late. When we have parts of the world, India, parts of India that that get their drinking water from uh, ice melt. Horrifying to think about. One of the things I've, I haven't said this one in a while, that when people say, well, we have to feel it before we act. I think that if in 2019, I said to someone, could you imagine if our encroachment in wildlife territory and the population density and all of our flying all over the place led to a global pandemic where billions of people were locked down in their homes and couldn't go outside? I bet everyone would have said that would lead to everyone changing. Mm-hmm. And there's been some change, but not nearly what could have, I mean, the change that I've had in my life in roughly that amount of time, most people's was much smaller in society. I mean, everyone's like, let's fly more. I want to go back to when your description of the Adirondacks and growing up and the parts that you appreciated, what you got there. I invite you at your option to think of something to do, not to fix the world. This is not like, what's the biggest thing you could do or what's the most important thing to do, but something you could do to manifest that experience here now. And with the constraints that it's something that you're not already doing, so something new, and it can be long-term or short-term, that's not as long as or as short as you like, uh, but something that you do with your own hands and something that has a physical effect. So not telling other people what to do, but something that recalls or manifests your experience growing up. Hmm. Like planting something or... If that resonates, yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that something that brings you back? Yeah, that does. I mean, one of the things I loved growing up that you can't really do in Manhattan is I loved um, having a bird feeder. You can go bird watching in Manhattan. We have some of the best bird watching in the world, actually. But um, I loved uh, tending a bird feeder and having them come. You can't really do that in Chelsea, but we have some of the best bird watching in the world. You can't do it in Chelsea because of rules or because? Because we are on the flight path of uh, migratory birds coming to and from Canada and north points north. And when they come into the New York City metropolitan area, they gravitate towards green space. And Central Park has kind of served as like a funnel of bird life. So some of the best bird watching in the world is in, is in Central Park because they, they fly into Central Park. They concentrate in Central Park on their way north. And birds will stay for quite a few days in Central Park. And you'll have bird watchers will come and they'll 
they'll spot a bird and they'll come back every day to see if it's an unusual bird, they'll come back every day to see the same bird. And by like the third or fourth day, sometimes you'll have like 40 or 50 people coming to see that bird before it flies on. I don't make as much time to do it. I've been bird watching in, in Central Park. I, I don't make as much time to do it as I would like to, but uh, that's something I really enjoy. Yeah, I asked because a friend of mine in, started an apiary or just one beehive in Brooklyn, and it sounded vaguely similar, but not now I see it's, I don't think bees migrate. I don't think they do. I don't know. So if you can't put up a bird feeder, does anything else come to mind? Let me think about it. Yeah, let me, let me think about it. It's a very interesting question. When people say, let me think about it, if we hang up, then that means they'll forget about it. But if I, if I persist a bit, then eventually they say something, oh, you know, I've been meaning to do this or something, something comes up. So I'm going to persist a bit. What are some things that others have done? Sometimes it's better if it comes from inside you. Okay. So I'm going to hold off on answering that. But if, if you really get stuck, I can offer some things. Right. It could be related to putting up a bird feeder, something like that. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a big deal. If you went bird watching, that would be one thing. Planting a tree is another thing that you said. That would work too. Professionally, one of the things that I want to uh, do is create more community gardens and more green space in council district three, potentially in, um, in road beds. Right. And these could be also bioswales that, that absorb uh, rainwater runoff, divert it from going into the, the drains, but also they could be green spaces for uh, community gardening, tree pits, any, any number of things. So want to do something like that? Now, passing legislation doesn't count. It has, some, it has to be something you do yourself right. for this. Yeah, maybe there's a, a way I can uh, plant something locally. If you plant something locally, I would be glad to help. Like, I don't have a shovel, but I'll show up and, and help if, okay. it, if I can. <laughs> Sounds good. Let's do it. All right, so then the next step is to make it a smart goal. So I mean, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. So... By when would you plant how many things? Or- uh, boy, oh boy. Well, I got a lot going on the next month. And, you know, the challenge is finding out where, what and where. I'd have to find a place, you know, most of the green space in our neighborhood is spoken for, including the tree beds. I've been wondering, you know, on the West Side Highway, there's dividers between the up, uptown and downtown and I was thinking of go, just one day just going and planting a tree there. I don't know if you have to, if you can or not. I mean, I don't know if there's a law against planting trees. You are not allowed to plant trees in your own trees in New York City, the Parks Department. Now that's state, that would be the state, that's state property. Oftentimes, if there's not a tree somewhere that seems like an obvious place for a tree, a street tree, it's because the location can't accommodate a tree because it's over, it could perhaps be over electrical infrastructure or a, or some kind of other, there could be, or it could be too close to another tree. It might not look close, but oftentimes they, they don't allow you to plant a tree because it's, it would be under the canopy of another tree or too close to another tree. But then oftentimes it is a place that could accommodate a tree. But the thing to do is to contact the organization 
that has site control for a, a tree pit on a New York City sidewalk, it would be the Parks Department. And they have a nonprofit called the, the Tree Trust. And what that is, is a, it's a non-for-profit arm, basically, of the Parks Department. And you can make a tax-deductible donation and get a street tree for that location. You can also call 311 and request a tree. That takes longer. But if, if you make a donation for a tree or get your block association to, to do it or your building, your, your co-op board, your condo board, your landlord, you can get a tree relatively quickly in a, in a tree pit. Twice a year is a planting season. Once in the spring and the other is around now, believe it or not, after the frost, after the first frost. So I'm trying to think of, so would, would, does this preclude you planting a tree with your own hands? In which case? I would not be able to plant a tree, but um, I mean, this time of year, I guess you could plant. It's a little late for planting bulbs for next year. You could plant like mums if there's any left for sale, but they wouldn't really make it past the first, um, their, their first frost. But in the spring, we could endeavor to do some of this in the spring at the first opportunity. So to make it, a spring is fine. There's no time limit on this. So I propose, the next thing is to invite you back to share how it went. Could we schedule is there a time that we could schedule a second conversation after which, so that if, if I say, how did it go? Hopefully I'll be there and I'll, I'll, I've seen it, but for the, for the listeners to hear how it went. Let's do that. Let's do that this spring mm-hmm. and we can walk through the whole experience together. Okay. So then I know that I'll be seeing you because you're my representative. So at some point we'll schedule that second conversation and Great. I guess that'll come after we plant something. I wonder what it might be because there's all these edible plants around that I love, the Juneberry trees. Yeah, there's a number of things we could do. I'm excited to uh, brainstorm that with you. Okay. Well, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything you want to share directly with the listeners? I just want to thank you for being a, a leading voice on this issue. We need more people like you who are talking about not just climate change, but sustainability and producing less waste and exhibiting ways to do it. That's very important. So thank you for doing all you do and thanks for having me today. Oh man, I'm touched by the recognition and the the distinctions that you made are very meaningful to me and I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.